former library. It's, uh, it's Ray, Ray started with that reflection on, on Easter, and it's, um, it's often lost on, on many people, but Easter is also a season, and it's a season of feasting that goes on longer than Lent. So as Lent is the season of fasting and self-denial, Easter is actually a season that brings us all the way to Pentecost, where we celebrate the coming of the Spirit. So it's a time for us to feast in response to that time we spent fasting, and so it goes on longer. And so uh, as we sang the songs, uh, you know, some of the ones we missed last week, importantly, like Because He Lives and Up From the Grave He Rose, classic favorites that people love. It's this season that we will continue to sing sort of Easter songs, uh, particularly to bring out that meaning, that Easter doesn't just um, happen that one day, but it's a season. And there's, if you've, if you've listened to us at all during Lent or our journey to the cross, you know, we talk about giving up something for 40 days to sort of focus our attention on God, to have this sort of spring cleaning for our souls to bring our minds towards God and, and such. And what happens is, is that there's actually 46 days in Lent or this journey. And um, what, what the reason for that is because every Sunday is a celebration of the resurrection. So every Sunday is a feast of the resurrection. So those days don't count too. So, so what Ray said, it brings out those moments for us that this is this moment today, the, the reason why Christians move their date of meeting from, from as Jews from Saturday to Sunday is to mark this grand news that begins in the resurrection. But I wanted to start with a story um, from a second century document, um, and it's, it's preserved for us here by, by Ben Myers, but, but I, I invite you to listen to this. On the eve of Easter Sunday, a group of believers has stayed up all night in vigil of prayer, scriptural reading, and instruction. The most important moment of their lives is fast approaching. For years, they have been preparing for this day. When the rooster crows at dawn, they are led out to a pool of flowing water. They remove their clothes. The women let down their hair and remove their jewelry. They announce Satan and are anointed head to foot with oil. They're led naked into the water. Then they are asked a question. Do you believe in God, the Father Almighty? They reply, I believe. And they are plunged into the water and raised up again. They are asked a second question. Do you believe in Christ Jesus, the Son of God, who was born of the Holy Spirit and of the Virgin Mary and was crucified under Pontius and was dead and buried and rose on the third day alive from the dead and ascended into the heavens and sits at the right hand of the Father and will come again to judge the living and the dead? Again, they confess, I believe, and they are immersed into the water. There is a third question. Do you believe in the Holy Spirit and the Holy Church and the resurrection of the flesh? A third time they cry, I believe, and a third time they are immersed. When they emerge from the water, they are again anointed with oil. They are clothed, blessed, blessed and led into the assembly of believers, where they will share for the first time in the Eucharistic, the communion meal. Finally, they are set out into the world to do good works and to grow in faith. This is how baptism is described in this, this book, The Apostolic Tradition, that you can still get today, but, but how these believers train for this moment. They're, they're instructed for this moment, and they stay up all night, and they, they, they are brought naked into baptism, and then they come out, and they are reclothed and invited in for the Eucharistic meal and claimed with Christ. 
This Sunday we're starting a new series, and this series is on what we see operating in this text, which is on the Apostles' Creed. Now, I've listened to several sermons this week on the Apostles' Creed because I'm aware of the feedback of, of two primary feedbacks. The first one is no creed but the Bible. Um, why would we need a creed if we have the Bible uh, alone? That suffices. And there's a couple reasons, answers to that question. If somebody wants to talk about it afterwards, we could go on for hours with different answers to that question. But the first is this, and Hampton and I were talking about this before church, is that the emergence of what we call the Bible, particularly the 27 books that make up the New Testament, uh, or the books that make up the New Testament, happens around the same time that these creeds are emerging as well. There are historians of church history that, that will argue that, that one of the questions when they finally sealed the New Testament with the number of books that were going to be in it, they asked of those books was, do they conform to the creed? Now that could be a conflicted interpretation, but this happening at the same time is that Christians are sort of defining what they believe in the world, while at the same time sort of taking shape of what their canon, the, the, what we use for this, this process of, of definitive scriptures, they happen concurrently. The second one, and, and maybe that's not an answer for that, but we could talk more about how this breeds, uh, brings out these stories, and we will a little bit, but, but it's not clear entirely from Scripture. Well, let's just take Marcion. Uh, Marcion is this very, very early term we now use for heretics, which generally, if you're a loser in church history, that's the title you get, heretic. Uh, church history, like all history, is predominantly written by the winners. Um, but, but Marcion, this heretic, really loves the scriptures. He really loves the Bible. And the Bible has led him to beliefs that none of us would say a Christian should hold today. In the third century, there's Arians, and the Arians really love the Bible, third, fourth century. This is where the, the Nicene Creed comes from. And they hold beliefs that we think no Christian should hold today. And so what the creeds have, have functioned as is a reading strategy for holding the Bible together so that you don't end up in the gutter with Marcion or Arius. And, and the reason why I go Marcion or Arius is because they, while committing similar error on who Jesus is, one falls to one side, um, he's not human, the other falls to the other side, he's not God. Um, and those are things that are preserved that keep us from the creed from doing. The other would be uh, the saying that many of you are familiar with, but no creed but Christ. And I think if you were to sit with anybody, even at the Council of Nicaea, Athanasius, before then, Irenaeus, any of them, and to say, hey, I like your thing, but no creed but Christ, they would be like, well, we just say that, but it's a little bit longer. Um, <laughs> They did not intend to make a creed that was other than Christ. They did not mean to do anything like that. They would say, okay, well, in Scripture, and this is, a, this is a saying I like for this, Scripture says in long what the creed says in short. And so if you were to say, no creed but Christ, Christ is my creed, then you say it in even shorter. <laughs> but the point being is that these, these are more expansive ways of saying it when we read Scripture and a shorter way of saying, what do Christians mean when they speak, when they say, I believe. Now, as many of you know, the creed that we'll be walking through is called the Apostles' Creed, and it's plural. And, you know, I went to seminary. I've, I've studied church history a long time. This week, I found out why it's called the Apostles' Creed. I just assumed because 
hey, if you're going to brand something, it's the faith that the apostles gave us. Apostles' Creed, that's smart. Um, first century branding limits, I mean, I would have gone with an edgier term, but, but that sounds good. Um, you know, defiance church, I came up with that, so I bear the blame for that as well. I would have gone edgier. Um, but this uh, image, which is very hard to see, it's in the bulletin, is actually what they believed is like 10 days after the ascension, each one of the apostles gave one of the 12 lines that make up the creed. And so this is sort of an artistic rendition, I think from the 12th century, of each one of the apostles in order sort of providing their line that makes up this apostles' creed. And if you're familiar in the book of Acts, it, it has this, um, this phrase that they committed themselves to the apostles' teaching is what they do. And so the idea that this is the apostles' teaching was, was why they chose this term for it. So the apostles on this is plural. It's the apostles' creed and that they each added a line. Um, historically, that doesn't seem likely as the, uh, where the creed comes from, but that's where the name of the creed comes from, is that it is the, it's, it's been committed to us by the apostles, each of them providing a line, which is a, which is a story I like. I think it's an interesting way to sort of make this up. And what this creed does for us is it names, it's on the back of the bulletin if you're not familiar with it and you're like, it would be nice to know what he's talking about. Um, it's on the back of the bulletin. You can read it in Latin in the little image in the bulletin, but if you're like me, reverse it and read it on the other side. Um, and you can read it in full. Um, but what this creed proclaims is this living relationship to who God is. And it has this relationship to the Bible in which it tries to, to sort of weight things. And so the, the reading that Kim read for us from Deuteronomy is, is this amazing reading because if Jesus said a creed in his life, it would be Shema, O Israel, hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. It functions as a creed in Judaism. The other Abrahamic faith, as, as we call them in the world today, um, there is one God and Muhammad is his prophet, is the creed that makes up that religion. What's interesting about Christianity is, is that if you say, um, hear O Israel today, or there is one God and there is Muhammad and their prophet, you're invited into sort of practices that then make up the faith. And you'll see this with, with secular Judaism as we have it is that secular Jews will practice these rituals that they don't believe in. And it's not clear that those are entirely a problem within the religious spheres of, 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 of Islam and, and Judaism. But what happens with Christianity, and it's not quite clear exactly why this is, although the Romans reading that Ray read for us, or Brian read for us, is partially a clue, belief and trust and that you actually care for these things, and that they've rooted themselves into your heart and into your life, ramps up to a whole new meaning. It's not enough to say, here, O Israel, the Lord, the God is one, or there is one God and Muhammad is his prophet, and now fulfill these sort of social roles. What the Christianity asks is, is it in you? Has it taken residency in your soul? Do you, uh, in the Greek word, pistis that? Does, do you believe that? And that's a term that, that connotates trust. It connotates so many things that like, is this something you're willing to record your life on? Or in that story we read from, from how baptism was, is this something you're willing to train for and to announce in the middle of people uh, naked as you are baptized, this I believe. To say this is something that I trust in. 
that this is something that makes me up. Christianity, almost more than every other religion, really got into that. And, and there's the, the second downfall plus, depending on how nerdy you are, is then we ramped up discussions of theology. So you can buy more and more theology from the Christian church than almost any other religion because we're more definitively discussing what does it mean to believe these things. This is another spot where the Apostles' Creed is, Christi- is helpful because if we were to say, if we were to define what the field of Christianity is, I mean, you could define the field of Christianity as those who are free will, adult b- baptism, Baptists who only read the King James. I would say that's not a wise choice. Um, I think we need a wider field to look at and to say, who are our Christian brothers and sisters in a world of 10,000 denominations, um, growing denominations throughout the world? I think we need a wider field. And what I would say is perhaps that wider field, sort of one place to say, and I, I don't like saying this about the creed, but perhaps a bare minimum to say we're brothers and sisters in Christ despite our disagreements um, is the Apostles' Creed, to say that at least if we should join and, and partner with other churches, they should be churches that can hold to this sort of creed and confess these things. It sets up a field so that we can say, these are the people who are with us. Some of them we put in the corner of the field and, and pretend they're there. And, and each person, I won't define who those people are for me, but we all have them. Um, uh, they're normally the ones with the loudest microphones for me, actually. I will say that. The ones who get to say Christians believe this. I'm like, yeah, they're in the field, but they're like way in the corner. Um, uh, but this Apostles' Creed, I think, fulfills that. My hope is as we walk through it, and today we're just talking about I believe, and we'll do the, the creed is Trinitarian in that I believe in God the Father, I believe in Jesus Christ, I believe in the Holy Spirit. We'll spend two weeks on each of those. I believe in God the Father Almighty, I believe in Jesus Christ, His only Son, which Jesus gets the long one, and then I believe in the Holy Spirit, which is followed by these other ones that I think are, are part of the Holy Spirit, that the, the church, universal, is listed in there, um, other things. Uh, it's a, it's uh, Katrina and, and uh, Buford, did you guys get a hymnal today? There's, I think it's 715 in the hymnal, the creed. Uh, the creed is actually in our hymnal, way in the back. I think it's 715, 714. Um, if you're interested in seeing it in there too. So it's something that makes up the church wider. What does it mean to hold it as a creed or to hold it as a confession? It's perhaps something worth debating and discussing, but we're not going to get into that today. This is, uh, I forgot about this slide. This is, this is Irenaeus in the third century. I'm not going to read it, but here, or Irenaeus dies in 200 AD, give or take a little bit. He dies in 200 AD. He wrote out something very near to the Apostles' Creed in 200 AD that is up here on the slide. If you want it, I can give it to you later. Uh, We talked about the Bible a little. Here is what I believe as studied by sociologists. I believe in a God who exists, who created and ordered the world and watches over human life. I believe God wants people to be good and nice and fair to each other as taught in the Bible and most religions. The central goal of life is to be happy and to feel good about oneself. I believe God does not need to be particularly involved in one's life except when God is needed to resolve a problem. I believe good people go to heaven when they die. This phrase um, came out of one of the largest sort of cross-generational studies by a secular sort of university on what people, I'm an old millennial, 
uh, to young millennials believe about religion. And they actually found this as a summary of what they believe was almost very good for Christians as well, which we'll get into in a second. But this, this sort of... Um, this is sort of the definition of what the average person, like me, believes. And what they notice, too, is like, yeah, but what about the, if you've watched God's Not Dead 1 through 16, um, which is a joke about the God's Not Dead franchise, um, they're in the field in the corner. Um, uh, but uh, if you've watched those, you know that there's this rabid atheist pr professor played by Kevin Zorbo, to, to many of us is Hercules, um, in good 1990s television. Um, and what you find in that is that that existed like at a certain time on college campuses. But what they find among most young people is religion is kind of a benign thing. The rabid atheist person under the age of 40 is just not there the way they used to be. It's more like, hey, look, if you believe that and you want to go to church on Sunday and, and meet me later, that's fine. Nobody is pushing back today. It's why this is such a good summary of the creed of what these, this age group believes, what this believes in this time, is because it sort of lays out that this thing is kind of like, oh, if you want this God to be there, he'll come to you in your time of need. If you're not particularly interested, then that's okay too. And don't let it interrupt your all or take away from too much of your fun. Just don't take it too seriously as sort of what we get from this creed. And this is what they call this, the creed of, um, and you've probably heard me use this phrase before, the phrase is moralistic, therapeutic deism. Um, that religion, and if you think back to your life, you can think of was it that there are times where Christianity, particularly with my parents at times, was very moralistic, perform to these rituals. So be good. You can have a large definition of that, or you can have a small definition of that, but be good, be nice, be fair. Uh, therapeutic, that, that God somehow cares for my emotional needs, that something about religion has something to do with my emotive state. And the third, deistic, is, is generally this God in this religion, we'll call it that, moralistic therapeutic deism, is, um, is vague. It's the big God out there. It's the big uh, teddy bear, it's the big... Um, it's just a vague notion of who God is. And so moralistic therapeutic deism sort of captures this term. And I, this is just super nerdy, but like the deistic, there is a deistic so society of North America, and they were really offended by the way they used deism because they felt shunned in the corner. And I was like, I didn't even know we still had deists, which is amazing. Uh, and I feel bad for them, but that's the phrase we have for this. Moralistic therapeutic, well, we should represent people's beliefs as best as we can. Uh, so, moralistic therapeutic deism is the term. But what she found, and what, what um, Christian Smith and others found, is the problem seems to be in the churches as well. The problem does not seem to be, is, this is Kenda Dean, a thinker at Princeton, the problem does not seem to be that churches are teaching young people badly, that we're doing is the, but that we're doing an exceedingly good job of teaching the youth what we really believe. Namely, that Christianity is not a big deal, that God requires little, and the church is a helpful social institution filled with nice people. She goes on to say that if churches practice MTD, moralistic therapeutic deism, in the name of Christianity, then getting teenagers, and this is my favorite part, getting teenagers to church more often is not the solution. Conceivably, it could make things worse. A more faithful church is the solution. So, 
biographical information for me. I was a youth minister before I came here, and I was like, I don't want to be a youth minister, but I wanted a job, so I became a youth minister. And I went, and I heard Kenda, this speaker, talk about this at Seattle Pacific University. And she said very clearly, and, and this is in the research, is that kids are still predominantly adopting the religious beliefs of their parents. And she said that if Christian Smith and Melinda, Melinda Denton's research is correct, and it's a big study. I mean, it wasn't done biasly. They interviewed all these kids, tons of kids. Um, if their research is correct, then the challenge of youth ministry, the challenge of this religion, moralistic, therapeutic deism, or Christian moralistic, therapeutic deism that you're going to confront in your work is actually the challenge of the whole church. It's the challenge of all that we do. And that awakened within me of like, oh, so the thing I'm fighting here, the thing I'm trying to push back here, is actually the thing I'm going to be pushing back against for the rest of my ministerial life. And I don't know, the dark sense of call. I was like, that's reassuring, I guess. Because it wasn't that I was a youth minister. It placed me in the context of that this is my call now, to sort of to see this belief in the world and to work to bring people to maturity or to greater faith out of it that it names something for me. And so uh, I fell in love with this term. I think that pastors who don't know this term um, should either learn it or get fired. Um, a grandiose statements in my mind. But it's a very important thing for us to know. And here's the most important part about kind of why I brought it up today, is that Christian moralistic therapeutic deism, this with a little, little light Christianity added, is more like a heresy than it is like a new religion. Does that make sense? It's, it's, it's more like, hey, we still love the Bible, and we still love prayer, and we still think church is a good idea on the times that we have to go it, and the Broncos aren't playing, and the snow isn't good. We'll be there. And yet, um, we differ on this. And, and so it is for you, uh, the Christian, the robust Christian, the, the non-heretical Christian, let's say, um, to define to me in a way that corrects my Christian beliefs back to the past. And the, the term, the way that the church has classically or most often responded to creeds or to, to new heresies is by writing a new creed or a new confession. But I think the temptation in the modern world to say, well, we should write a new one is probably a mistake. We write too much. We want to develop new things all the time. The pull to the new is very strong for us. If it's newer, it must be better. And I think to resist uh, sort of a creed like this or a heresy like this, I think the, the proper solution might be to look backwards. To not say, hey, let's develop a new creed that, that encounters this type of religion, this sort of heresy. Let's actually look backwards and clothe ourselves in the tradition in which we've inherited, from which we have received and what has been passed on to us from the apostles and through God's spirit working throughout church history and find our solution not in a new thing, but find our solution in an old thing. And so that's part of my argument for why the Apostles' Creed. How are we going to move into this realm to... And, and to be honest, this lives within me. 
this moralistic therapeutic deism. And it has the shade of looking like the Christian faith. And so for me, myself, the creed is a way of resetting myself and bringing myself back to that there's something more going on here. I believe, I said in my baptism, I believe this thing, that God is more real than a, than a cosmic therapist, but is somebody who's alive and active and radiating in my life. And I think, my hope, is that as we explore the Apostles' Creed, we can find that here. should say that we're going to, each week, root the Apostles' Creed in Scripture. It emerges from Scripture, if, if that's a concern for you. But that's how we're going to try and make this thing expansive for ourselves and the ways in which we can sort of find our home in a larger faith that stretches for 2,000 years. There probably isn't a day in the history of, of since this was decided in, let's say, 500 A.D. definitively, there probably isn't a day, not just a Sunday, where this hasn't been recited somewhere in the world. And I think that's wise for us to listen to these past voices on this, to find hope there, to move back and to sort of push back this thing. And so the long-term goal, and, and this is what we'll practice during these weeks, is after the final song, song after the sermon, which it, this week is in Christ alone, will remain standing and recite the creed together. Um, and that will be in place of our confession for these six to seven weeks. I'm really excited. I believe in the Holy Spirit is on Pentecost, which is like, ha, it's very awesome. Um, for something that happens unintentionally, it's very awesome. Um, but uh, for these weeks, we'll do that. And then my hope is is as we end, I don't like to unilaterally impose these things, but as we end that, perhaps we find a place for the Apostles' Creed in our service going forward. I think traditionally it's not important that we do it every Sunday, but maybe as churches do communion the first Sunday of every month, perhaps the first Sunday of every month we proclaim the Creed together to remind us and to bring us back, to draw us back to this well of faith that we have before us. So that's something to consider, that, that we just don't utilize the creed for seven weeks, and then I take my file of, of stuff on this and then put it away, and then we jump into numbers next, which is going to be, uh, yeah, everybody's excited for numbers. Um, and so the creed will be much forgotten by the time we get to numbers, or, or through numbers, let's say. Um, and so my hope is that we don't just utilize these things from the past to, to make a point and then move on but they take a root within us, that they become something more a part of us than just, hey, this is something. And, and one of the things that, that uh, do I have left? Creed functions as a profession of faith, a rule of faith, which is the old term. In a world of, let's just pick on study Bibles for a second, of so many study Bibles, and I've said this before, but if we're in Bible study together and you say, well, my Bible says, and you're reading from the bottom half, that's not always helpful because there's all these different interpretations. And so the creed functions as this rule of faith to say, let's keep this at the center when we discuss these things, perhaps. Um, at least have this as a generous goal for each other. The rule of faith helps us to find that like your, your every person who struggles with Instagram study Bible does not have the definitive role in, in the faith. Uh, that's not a real one, Emily, did you just ask? It's coming, every, every man's battle with social media. Um, is coming, but uh, it, will it be a net Bible, Hampton? No. <laughs> so, um, 
It constructs a world for us. It becomes a flag for us in the world, um, and it makes something. And this is the last thing that I wanted to end with. Um, those are just some other things I was going to say, but I'm not. Um, and this is the, the, the most important thought I, that I think comes from G.K. Chesterton in a book called Orthodoxy. And he says, the more I considered Christianity, the more while I found it had established a rule and an order, the chief aim of that order was to give room for good things to run wild. And that's mainly my hope with this, is that rule and order, I've joined something that has rule and order in the modern world is not a good thing. I've joined something that says where we stand up and we say at least once a month, this is what we believe together. And it's interesting, the church that, as the creed has functioned, doesn't ask what you believe at 10.55 a.m. on a Sunday morning in Defiance Church in Glenwood Springs. The church gives us something pronounced at that time. You may not feel like you believe this, but, but we join something larger when we say, I believe this thing, we believe this thing. But what Chesterton says here, and I don't think rule and order were positive terms at the time he was realizing, that the main aim of that rule and order was to give room for the good things of our life to run wild. It wasn't to box us in so that we had no original thought, no debate, no engagement in what God is doing, or how we understand particularly scriptures or things to our lives, but it was there to give us a shape in which we can flourish in, that we can run wild in. And so that's my hope as we go through this series. Let us pray. God the Father, we believe. While it's tempting to have original and new words, we set aside a time to hear from the ways your spirit has worked in the past to hear of a faith that was passed on, to have a faith that was living and active. We ask that this faith, this relationship to the living God, Jesus, the living God, the Father, and the living Spirit, would so creep into our lives in the way that you would have it, push back the spirit of the age. And that within this new rule, this new order, this new uh, fence, this new place we have to sort of be, we would find that we've been given the tools, the utensils, the scriptures, the prayers, and the wisdom to have a full life within it, to run wild and to see the goodness that you have for us. We ask all of this in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.